in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let us pray. Father, we again come before you and we give thanks to you for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you have revealed truth to us. Lord, be near us um, this morning. Father, I wanna pray especially for those who are sick um, in, our, in, our, in our membership, in our body, in our family, and those uh, um, extended family members at well, Lord, we would pray for healing for their bodies, Lord. Lord, we understand that this is a time whenever uh, this virus and other viruses are just, they're rampant and they remind us that we are not as strong as we think we are. And Lord, they make us humble. They bring us to our knees. They make us dependent upon you, Lord. And that's a good place for us to be. Lord, it's in places like this, may we find you as our strength. And we be reminded that this is not our home, that heaven awaits. And for the lost, Lord, who are struggling right now, Lord, as, they, as they're losing loved ones, as they're feeling illness as well, may this be a reminder that this world is not all that there is. It's appointed once for man to die, and after that, the judgment. And there may be some who may be watching us via live stream. There may be some in this room who are not yet prepared to stand before the just judge of the universe, you, Jesus Christ. They're holding on to their sins. They have guilty hot hearts, unclean hands, defiled hands. And Lord, may they look to you, Jesus, for all of your cleansing. Lord, be near to us now as we study First Timothy. In your name we pray, amen. Um, thank you, you could be seated. Gosh, Got a lot to do, got a lot to cover. We're gonna try to get it all in. Hopefully uh, you stay, uh, you're caffeinated and you're staying alert and maybe you wanna take some notes. And so the first thing I would say is uh, maybe you could answer this question of why First Timothy? Why are we studying First Timothy? Well, because there's tons of controversial things in First Timothy and it seems like there's not all that much controversy happening in our world. So I thought I would just liven things up a little bit with a little theological controversy. No, that's not why we're in First Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy, as I said last week, because last week we celebrated 15 years um, as a church. And so that's a big deal for us. What that means for us is that if we, were, if we were 15 years old, it means that we would know nothing, but we would think we would know everything. And that's like kind of fitting, you know, for us as a church. No, I think maybe 
years in church plants, um, they really are like dog years. You know how like whatever it is, like one equals seven. I think that's the way. I think we're actually like year 50 as a church plant. At least that's the way that I feel. And I've only been here, you know, for the past uh, 12 or 13 years. Now we want to study this because it is timely for us to study a pastoral epistle. And that's what First Timothy is. There are the pastoral epistles written by Paul to pastors of churches, written to individuals. So this one's written to Timothy. There's, so he'll write two letters to Timothy, write another letter to Titus as well. And so they help us. I mean, as we read 1 Timothy, there's going to be parts of it that you're going to feel, hey, that's relevant to us as a church. And there's going to be parts of it that you may feel like, hey, that's not irrelevant. Like, we're not struggling with that. And I would add, like, we're not struggling with that maybe now. Like, by God's grace, I do believe that we are, for the most part, a healthy church. But but may we just be, maybe we be aware that we never drift towards health. That we as a church, we will never drift towards sound doctrine. We're never going to drift towards love. We're never going to drift towards unity. We're not going to drift towards those kinds of things. we got to fight our way toward those things. We got to have, we got to realize we have within ourselves, every one of us, the tendency to do like what Paul's saying about these false teachers that we read about, to swerve from biblical truth. So we want to stay our ground. Second, I find that 1 Timothy would be helpful for us because we are in this marathon called life or nevertheless, we're in this marathon that's known as uh, 2020 and now it is, uh, you know, uh, uh, crept over into 2021. And I say that it's a marathon because in some ways it does feel like a lot like a marathon, does it not? It feels like we're in this race and we're running uphill and some of us, we may be completely winded in this race. I would say the difference between the race that we're running in right now in like the world that we're living in, in the political climate and COVID and all of these racial tensions, all these things that we're, that we're, we're currently experiencing, what's the difference between this and a marathon? Well, I would say this, that in a marathon, you know how far you gotta go. Like you, those of you, and I have deep admiration for those of you that are athletes among us, especially those of you that are triathletes and you're runners, but you know when you're running, like I've seen you do it. You've got watches, the GPS locate you, and it's counting down how much further you got. And let's just be honest, we don't know how much further we have in this thing called 2020 and now 2021. Like who would have thought it? we could have looked back on our lives in 2019 and said, gosh, that was the good old days, Right. But it was, for many of us, it was the good old days. And life is just incredibly tough. And the truth is, I don't know. Are we on mile marker number 5, 10, 15, 25? I have no idea. And I know, like looking at some of you and seeing your Facebook posts, I know that we're completely winded. A few years ago, a couple within our church were insane enough to sign up for the Ironman competitions. I'm looking at a couple of you here. And a part of our job as friends and church family is we went to Louisville to cheer you on. And I remember whenever Danielle Crosman, her sister Megan, several years ago, when they ran, the, they competed in the, in the Ironman, we went and we stationed ourselves in between the second lag and the third lag. And so for those of you that are unfamiliar, here's the, here's the lags of the Ironman. The first thing you do is you swim 2.4 miles. The second thing you do is you ride a bicycle for 112 miles. And the last thing you do is you run a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. And you do all of that within this time frame, not days, weeks, months, but 
hours that you have to complete this. And so we find ourselves, we're going to cheer on our friends. We find ourselves in between where they laying down their bicycles and they're getting ready to run. And I'm looking at these human beings that are just completely winded. They just have, seem like they have no energy left. And our job is to cheer them on. And so we're going, woohoo, you can do this. You just have a marathon to run. Just another 26.2 miles. And you got this thing whipped. And that's the way I feel some of you look, like you're laying down your bike, and I just want to say to you, hey, we still got a marathon to run, both in our lives and in our faith and in our unity and love as a church. And what I think First Timothy is going to be for us is it's going to be that cheerleader that's going to be encouraging us to stay the course and to continue and to press on and to press forward. I think that's going to be helpful for us. Now, I need to lay a lot of groundwork in order for us to understand the context. I know I said I'm going to keep the text in the context, but there's a greater historical context that we need to lay. And so let me move as quickly as I can through this. But question number one that we could ask is, where does 1 Timothy fit within the chronology of the, of the Bible, of the New Testament? I mean, it'd be so nice if God would have given us to this in chronological order, but nevertheless, it's not. So you may be going, hey, how does 1 Timothy Fit. And here's where I think it fits. I think it is a letter that Paul is writing and all of the events of the book of Acts have already occurred. So some may say, no, it fits within the book of Acts and we can kind of place it here between this missionary journey and that one. And I think it really fits like a, like a square peg in a round hole when you do that. That I think all the events that Luke records in Acts have all occurred and Acts ends with um, Paul being in light imprisonment in Rome. Acts um, chapter 28, verse 30 and 31, the ending of it, it says this, that he, meaning Paul, lived there, and that's in Rome, for two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I love that. And I think at the end of those two years, Paul is somewhat acquitted. He probably gets a, a stiff warning, and then he's released from his imprisonment in Rome. And what Paul will do is he's going to put the band back together, and they're going to go on tour. He's going to grab his, his missionary entourage with him. They're going to go on a tour of the churches. And it's during that tour that Paul's going to come to the city of Ephesus. He's going to uh, uh, you know, look at the landscape, see what's happening there. And then he's going to move on to Macedonia. He's going to go all the way in this time, all the way to Spain, which would have been the very ends of the earth, the known world at that time in fulfillment of Jesus's command in Acts chapter one. He's going to go all the way to Spain. They are probably in Spain. He's arrested again, sent back to Rome. And this time have a short imprisonment. It's even maybe in that time of that second imprisonment in Rome. And again, this isn't the Bible. This is just church history. Now, church history isn't inspired, but it can be historically correct. And so it's at the end, at that time, in that imprisonment, that maybe Paul writes the pastoral epistles back to the churches, short time of imprisonment, and then Paul will be executed in Rome. And so I believe it's during that time. No doubt, as you read the pastoral epistles, especially 2 Timothy, Paul's last book, you get the sense that uh, Paul believes this is the end of his life. And you even get that sense here. You get the sense that maybe that Paul's passing the torch to Timothy. It's kind of the same feel you get when you read about Ma Moses and Joshua um, there at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. You get the same kind of feeling whenever Elijah does with Elisha. And you kind of get that feeling in the pastoral epistles. And we'll get that flavor and that feel here in 1 Timothy. 
You kind of have this old gnarly battle axe of a soldier, a general, who's passing the torch down to an up-and-coming sergeant who's a little wet beyond the ears. Now, Timothy has been stationed, as we saw here, in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus probably, in my opinion, was probably Paul's favorite church. He planted it. He stayed there with them for three years. When he left the city of Ephesus and those churches, there was a lot of tears being shed. A couple of times, Paul referred to the tears as he boards the ship. And he, at that time, he believes, hey, I'm never even going to return. Not only are there tears shed, but there's also a prophetic warning that Paul will give to the elders in the church of Ephesus. You can find this in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Paul says this, he says, be on guard for yourselves. I'm reading this out of the Christian Standard Bible, just flows a little better. And Paul says this, be on guard for yourselves. That's to the elders. And for all your flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own numbers and they will distort the truth in order to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert. Remember that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. So as you hear about this, prophetic warning that Paul is giving. Now, all these years have transpired. Paul's come back, saw Ephesus, left, left Timothy. Writing this letter years later, you kind of see how congruent they are. You see that some of Paul's warnings have come to pass, that there's problems in the leadership of the church in Ephesus. There's false teachers who have infiltrated the church and they've corrupted the doctrine of the church. They've set up their own theological distractions. These are teachers, these are men who would rather divide the church over speculative, doctrinal novelties rather than unite the church around the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're legalists who are leading, lead, who are leading the church, yet their conscience, Paul will say, has been seared, and yet they will bind the consciences of the immature in the church. They were going to forbid things, things like marriage, good things, things like marriage. They're going to forbid foods, certain foods that they're going to say they can't eat. They're distorting the law. We saw that in the text. There's even among them apostate elders, men who aren't even believers, men who need to be disciplined out of the church, and yet they're continuing in their roles as teachers and as pastors and as elders. Paul's saying, Timothy, I'm charging you to make it stop. But as the leaders go, so goes the church. The problem just isn't in the leadership of the church, but the problem's in the membership of the church as well. There's godless men who would rather fight than to pray. There's godless women who treat the assembling of the saints together as their own personal fashion show rather than times of worship. There are women who are going from house to house, Paul says, and they're gossiping and they're stirring up strife in the church. There's widows in the church who have other means by which they can have their needs met, but instead they're content with just draining the church of ministry resources. There's wealthy people in the church who are flaunting their wealth rather than generously contributing to them. And as we read this, we get the sense that Paul is furious and rightfully so. He's not just furious as he gives in to his anger, but he's furious in concern that Paul feels the anxiety and the weight of his, of, of his calling as he wants to lead this church. Paul stayed with them, as I said, for a little while. He's exercised to church discipline. 
church discipline upon two of the false uh, teachers in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's handed them over to Satan. He's kicked them out of the church. He's gone on now to Macedonia. And now what he's done is he's left his favorite son, his favorite leader, Timothy, in his favorite church. He's appointed him as a pastor over the churches in Ephesus. And now he goes on to Macedonia. Next question we can ask that kind of fits in the timeline and the theme, but so why is Paul writing this? Well, he says that. He gives us the reason in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Here's the reason I'm writing this. I hope to come to you soon. So he's hoping to come back to Ephesus. We don't believe he ever gets to go back. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so Paul is writing so that we may know, right? by extension, he's writing to us that we may know how we ought to behave in the church. And what Paul is setting up here is this truth, this principle that belief leads to behavior. And so what Paul is writing to do is to correct belief. It's to show what we are to believe so that we know how to be- behave. Paul is instructing Timothy in what is true belief and right behavior in the church of Jesus Christ. And so here's where we're going to be for the next, here's where we're going to camp out for the next couple of weeks. It's going to be around this notion and this idea that God's authoritative word instructs his church into true belief and right behavior that leads us to love God and others. Now we put a pin in that for a second. Let me just make this assertion to you that I deeply believe. And there may be some among you that disagree with that, and that's okay. My grandfather says, hey, there's freedom here, and there's freedom for you to be wrong about this. But here's a truism that I believe, and I've seen it time and time again in church history, bears it out that, listen, sound doctrine honors God and leads to spiritual health for his people. And everybody, you may say, hey, that's true. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And listen to this. The converse of that would be this, that unsound, unbiblical doctrine, it dishonors God and it hurts people. That's why as you read Timothy, you kind of feel the steel in Paul's veins. You feel that, like I said, that, that anger that he has, that responsibility that he feels as he warns Timothy over and over again. And see, what we, we live in a time and in a culture, and we'll talk a lot about our culture, because our culture is not all that different than the church at Ephesus. It's a deeply secularized city. We live in a very deeply secularized world and nation, even now, and it's growing even more and more pagan, even more and more secular, even more and more anti-Christian, against the ethics, against the Bible. And sometimes even within churches, what they want to do, people want to pin theology versus a relationship. They would say, hey, the Bible's not about theology. What the Bible's about is the Bible's about how to have a relationship with God as if those two things need to be at odds, as if those two things were mutually exclusive, and they're not at all. Right theology leads us to worship God rightly. Right God and right worship of him needs to be known, and it needs to be articulated, it needs to be taught. How can you worship a God that you don't know? You can worship a figment of your imagination, but it may not be the God of the Bible because the only God that exists is the God of the Bible. And he has revealed himself, he has revealed himself to us and to the world on the pages of scripture. 
We'll talk about that over and over again. So theology is the means by which we come to a relationship and knowledge and right worship of God. And these things absolutely matters. And it dishonors God and it hurts people when we think wrongly about God and we teach wrongly with, about God. We need to have theological precision and we need to care about what the Bible teaches and we need to be good students, uh, or good uh, uh, students of God's word. We don't want just theology alone, but what we want is we want sound doctrine that informs the mind and it inflames the hearts. That's what we're after. That's why we're studying this. Let's look at the introduction, these three verses. Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, the apostle Paul should need no introduction, but if you don't know who Paul is, hey, that's, that's great, and we're so glad that you're here. You can find out a lot about Paul in the book of Acts. You should start in maybe Acts chapter 7. We'll give you the pre-Jesus side of Paul, and then you can read about Paul's conversion, and then you can read for the rest of the book of Acts about the life of Paul and all that Christ does in Paul, because Paul was someone who absolutely hated Christians. He's persecuting the church. In fact, on the way to Damascus, where Jesus will meet him and, and, and save Paul, it's on the way there that he's, he's got orders in hand on how to persecute the church. He's looking forward to going and beating the pudding out of Christians on his way there when Jesus shows up and Jesus meets him and God saves Paul and he disciples Paul for three years. He calls Paul, commissions Paul, commands Paul, sends Paul out and Paul becomes the greatest missionary and church planner the world has ever known. What Paul does here is he identifies himself as an apostle. Now the word apostle just simply means one who is sent. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see that the churches had apostles. I believe that's not an office that's open for today. We don't see any qualifications for apostleship for us today. So we read the pastoral epistles. They're going to talk about elders that are pastors and overseers. That's all kind of bishops. That's all the same terminology. I think I'll change my title. It's not going to be not lead pastor, lead bishop. I just, I think that sounds more regal. So you can call me Bishop Andy from now on. Um, Next week, I'll wear a robe. So you have those that are interchangeable, and then you have deacons. And those seem to be the two functioning offices of the church. But there is this idea in the New Testament churches that's being established as apostles of the New Testament churches. But Paul doesn't say he's an apostle of such and such church. What Paul says he's an apostle of is, notice, I'm an apostle of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus. So Paul identifies himself not as an apostle lowercase of a church, but rather apostle of a uppercase A, if we could, as not not an apostle generic, but as an apostle specific. And we see that in the New Testament. That's that's a real thing, that there are apostles specific. Paul was one of those. Let me define who those guys were. The apostles were small, definitive, so there's a total of 13 of them. The original 12 that Jesus chose, Judas is an unbeliever and he commits suicide. And then in Acts 1, you have uh, Matthias who comes in. So you have the original 12 and then you have one who is untimely born, the apostle Paul who comes in. So there's 13, they're unique. They're one-time group of individuals. They've been chosen and called and sent by Jesus himself, not by the church, but by Jesus ultimately. They were witnesses of the risen Christ. Their words and their work, especially the work of preaching and the gospel and establishing churches and teaching sound doctrine, comes from Jesus. And it's being confirmed by 
miraculous signs and wonders being performed by the Spirit. So Paul is one of those. He's appealing to his authority as one of those apostles. And we see that even here in verse number one. He says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by command of God our Savior and of Christ. Now that word he's using there, command, that's a, that's a military term, not a religious term that he's using. It's the kind of word that a centurion might say to a ligonier. I command you to take that hill. I command you to knock down that door. I command you to dig that ditch. You can kind of, again, feel the steel in Paul's veins that 1 Timothy is a call to arms for Timothy. It's going to flavor the rest of the book. Five times Paul is going to say to Timothy, I charge you. Again, that's a military term he's using there. Charge. I'm charging you to do this. It's a top-down directive that a general would give to a soldier or an emperor would give to a subject. And what Paul's doing in this introduction is Paul is establishing the chain of command because it's so important. The commands that I'm giving to you to Timothy, they're not coming from me, the, uh, Paul the human. They're not even coming from me saying as an apostle, but rather, look, they're all the way up. The chain of command, we're gonna climb all the way up and they're coming from God, our Savior. Now, that's not a term that's used very often in the New Testament, but it's referring to the Father. He's appealing all the way up as high as authority could go, all the way up to the Father. That's the chain of command. Those of you that were in the military, you understand the importance of chain of command. Now, I've never served a day in the military, but I've seen a lot of movies about the military. I remember in A Few Good Men, some of you may remember that. If you remember that and you saw it in the theater, you're old because that movie's 29 years old, right? I looked it up, 1992, 29 years old? Are you kidding me? 29 years ago, but a great movie, right? Tom Cruise is nuts, but nevertheless, Tom Cruise and Demi Moore and Jack Nicholson are in it. And remember like the end towards the end where Jack Nicholson, that that gnarly battle axe of a general is on the stand and you got Tom Cruise, who's the cocky lawyer questioning him and he's asking him, did you order the code red? And he's like, you know, who are you to ask me? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Did you order the code red? You, right, I ordered the code red. You know, the chain of command matters. Who's issued this? Whose authority are you acting on? And that's what Paul is doing here. He's establishing the chain of command. Ultimately, someone gives the orders. And what Paul is saying, the orders and my words and my authority that I'm speaking of the church, it's not my own authority, but it's delegated authority. It's been delegated to me from the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And it comes all the way down through Timothy, through the church at Ephesus, all the way down to us. And it's vital that we understand this, that Paul's words in 1 Timothy, they are Christ's words from the Father. And some of you go like, hey, hey, that's the big E on the I chart, pastor. And I get it. But what that means for us is that we cannot say that we are prepared to accept the words of Jesus, but we cannot accept the words of Paul. Some of you have red letter Bibles where Jesus's words are in red. And I'm not a big fan of those because the reality is the entire Bible is written in red all coming from the Father. It's all coming from Jesus. It's all being sent to us. It's all inspired, all of Bible. We believe that fully about that. 
Yes, it's true that Paul is a man like we are men. He's not the God-man. He's a normal human being just like we are. But Jesus, the God-man, has commanded Paul and called Paul and deputized Paul in order that he might establish the church, speaking his truth through Paul. And we get to start there. We get to start right there with that good question, I think, for us. As we think about that authority, let me ask you, is God's word the final authority, the ultimate authority in your life? Is God's word authoritative in your life? And if your answer is yes, do you understand that is? When you understand that the Bible is what I just claimed it to be, then guess what you get to do with it? You get to trust it. That's why we've called First uh, Timothy, we've called it a trustworthy truth. Because that's what I want to do. I want to engender trust that you and I, we get to trust in the Bible for what it is. It is the word of God, the will of God. God's revealing so many things to us in his word about himself and how we can know him and what the good life looks like according to his design. And we also not only get to trust in his word for what it is, but we get to trust it. We get to trust God's word for all of the promises and all the commands that he makes. It is trustworthy truth. In fact, let me remind you of what he says, the whole purpose of him writing this is that we would recognize that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Again, that was um, chapter three, verses 14 and 15. And we'll get there. But let me just kind of build out from that just for another minute. That we as the church, you and I, we are, we are upholding the truth of God. We are reinforcing as the church, we are reinforcing the church of God. Like I said, the city of Ephesus was a very secular city. In the city of Ephesus was this huge temple. It was a temple, um, not, a, not a Christian or a, or a, Jew, a Jewish temple, but a temple to the, the goddess uh, Diana or Artemis was located there. It was, they've said, it's, I mean, it's no longer there, but it was what they call one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It probably looks something like this. Probably, you know, looks kind of like the, maybe like the Parthenon or something like another ancient structure. But you notice all those pillars around it? Notice that huge, ginormous roof that probably carries all of the weight of that building and it's resting upon these pillars on top of it. No doubt, I think Paul is drawing from that imagery in order to teach and saying like, we as the church, we're the pillars on which God is placing his authority. He's placing his truth over it that you and I have been trusted with truth. We're upholding the truth, the truth about God and the truth about man, the truth about our fall, the truth about our rebellion, the truth about Jesus and who Jesus is, the truth about salvation, the truth about the gospel, the truth about the good life, life according to God's will and God's design has been entrusted to us. And we as pillars, we're under it. We're not above it. It stands in authority over us. We don't stand in authority over it. What that means is we believe what we believe because it is in the Bible and it's what the Bible teaches that ultimately we as a church and we as individuals, we are governed by the Bible and not what we've inherited, not what we think is biblical, not what we instinctively believe. That's called playing make-believe. Conversations all the time where people will say, well, I just don't believe that's how God works. Is it in the Bible? Nobody cares what you believe. The truths of the Bible, they don't have feelings. They press against our feelings. That isn't God. 
The truth is, as Paul is going to say some things here in 1 Timothy that isn't popular in our culture, he's going to say some things that are going to rub us the wrong way. They rub me the wrong way. And your initial reaction to that may be to bristle. It may be to be, go, but, 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 but what about, but what about, but what about, is it clearly being taught in Scripture? And if it is, then this is what you and I get to do. We get to trust it. We get to believe it. We get to obey it. We get to receive it. And we, need to, and we get to uphold it. Is there anything in our culture that's under attack any more than this idea of truth? I mean, we just talk about it as an idea. I mean, talking about biblical truth. I'm just talking about what is truth. I mean, we live in a postmodern age where truth is no longer something that is objective, but it's now something that is subjective. Truth is not based upon something that can be verified outside of you, but it's truth to you what's true to you. I mean, it's nothing new. It's not like this is a, it's a new concept many, for many of us, but it's nothing new to the story of a rebellion of man. This is just another uh, 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 label of postmodernism that man has invented time and time again. We see it in the book of Judges. At the end of the book of Judges, it says there's no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so truth became moral truth. Object, it no longer became something that was objective, but it became something that was subjective. And the same thing we're seeing happening here. Let me point to it as a, as a piece of evidence to this. This week, President Biden appointed a first transgendered person to an office. Rachel Levine, who was born a man and is a man, was appointed as the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now, this isn't a political statement at all. This is very theological in nature. Right belief leads to right uh, behavior. Right doctrine matters. Whenever we're not, we don't have right doctrine, right truth, when truth is now subjective to how you feel, it hurts people and it leads people astray. And we're seeing that in our culture. We now have someone filling an office who disagrees with science as objective truth. Someone who believes that feelings override science. Someone who disagrees with the sciences of biology and genetics and human anatomy is now the assistant secretary of the health and human services for our nation. This is no longer just an assault on Christianity. This is not an assault on our morality. This is an assault on logic and reason is what this is. I know many of you who work for the state, you're being, you're being introduced and indoctrinated into this, into this personal preferred pronouns. Heaven forbid that you would assume that your coworker with a five o'clock shadow and an Adam's apple is a man. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. You let them define whether, what their gender is. And that is just insanity. Can we not agree with that? That is absolute absurdity. And that's where we are. When truth is no longer objective, but truth is sub subjective. But you and I, as the church, what we get to do in our culture, in our world, is we get to uphold the truth. We get to uphold the truth. And what does that mean for us? I really want to think about that because it's easy just to poke holes at things as a preacher and not really articulate what that means for us. And I think it's, this is what it means. It's first, it means we get to trust in God's good crea creation and design. Again, this is nothing new. Ever since Genesis 1 and the fall of man, there's been a total assault on everything that God creates and institutes in Genesis 1 that he blesses and calls good. That's just the outworking of sin. 
Everything that God blessed and called good in Genesis 1, post-Genesis 1, post-the-fall, I guess post-Genesis 2, post-the-fall, we look back on it and we say it's not good and it shouldn't be blessed time and time again. And that's what we see even now. In Genesis 1, it says, in those days, or Genesis 1 says, so God created man in his own image. This is an assault. What we're experiencing here is an assault on the image of God, the Imago Dei. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And our culture that has fallen, a culture that is broken, it looks back and it says, no, 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 it's not good. But you and I, what we get to do is we get to trust that. We get to believe in that. We get to teach that, especially to our children. We teach that, that everything that God has blessed and called holy, it is good. It is according to God's, uh, God's good design. Not only do we get to trust in it, but we also, we get to stand in opposition to that. Sometimes we may stand in opposition to that. In order to stand in opposition to that in biblical terms, it takes courage and it takes compassion. And maybe you want to write those two things down. It takes courage because many of us may be looking at the cost of following Jesus that Jesus has outlined, like in the book of Matthew that I know you ladies are studying currently. You may think about the actual cost of following him and that may become a reality for us. We're going to talk about Timothy's need and struggle throughout the book for courage, but courage is something that we need as Christians, but not courage alone. He's not calling us to be Christian commandos. Somebody's calling us to do, but we have to have courage mixed with compassion. That when the Bible talks about, I, I like to call people who don't know Jesus pagan. And that's not, I'm not being derogatory in that. That's what they are. Everybody worships something. They worship something else other than God. I say that because it's a term of worship, but the Bible often will use this terminology, they're lost. And that changes things, does it not? When you're in Walmart and you see a lost child, does it engender rage and anger towards that lost child or compassion towards that lost child? Compassion. Some of you see a lost puppy dog. Anger and rage? No, your heart is pricked for that puppy. I got to help that puppy dog find its way home. That's what Jesus says about a lost world. He says that they're like a sheep without a shepherd. Really, when we think about this world around us, when we think about that their minds are debased, they're reprobate, they're broken. That's what that means. Romans 1, because of the just judgment of God, lost people's minds are broken. They no longer have minds that function rationally. That's what that means there, and we see that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the minds are blinded to truth. They're minded, blinded to the truth of the gospel. Who's blinding him? He says, well, the God of this world, Satan is doing that. And what that should engender in us is both courage and compassion and not rage. Paul tells Timothy to know this. He wants Timothy to take heart in the truth, to let the authority and the command of Christ be the steel in his veins. You may say, well, how does he do that? How are we to do that? Well, I want you to think about this about Timothy. That Timothy, um, Timothy, as we think about Timothy, that Timothy is no superstar personality. There's some in the Bible that we see that are kind of superstar personalities, men like Paul, another man by the name of Apollos, another man we know of, Peter, who seem to be superstar personalities. But when we see Timothy, we don't see that. That Timothy will be the one who will go on certain missions with Paul. Paul is discipling him. But Timothy, at times, Paul will send Timothy out on a mission. In fact, like Paul sends Timothy to the church at Corinth. 
Church of Corinth was a real goat rodeo. Ephesus, not that bad. Corinth was. And it's Timothy that will deliver the letter that Paul's written called 1 Corinthians to that church in Corinth. And as Timothy's there, Paul writes in the letter, as Timothy arrives, put him at ease when he arrives. So evidently, Timothy is nervous about something. The situation, in fact, in Corinth probably needed a little more umph, a little more firepower behind it. So when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he doesn't put it in Timothy's hands and sends Timothy. This time he sends Titus. Titus is the one that's going to lay down the law. Titus is the one that's going to be the heavy hitter. Throughout the book, we'll see that Timothy is a timid guy. Paul will write to Timothy in this letter, and he'll say, let no one despise you for your youth. In 2 Timothy, he'll say, you've not been given the spirit of fear. That's timidity, but of power and love and self-control. Beyond that, Timothy is probably a sickly guy. He has some kind of persistent stomach problems. In chapter 5, Paul says, stop drinking just water and have a little wine to settle his stomach. I resonate deeply with Timothy. I have for years. I love him. I love his character. I feel much like Timothy. Not only is he uh, all that power, even though he's not all that powerful of personality, Paul will obey what, or Timothy will obey what Paul writes and he will stay in Ephesus. He will establish a healthy church in Ephesus. Timothy will pastor the church in Ephesus, again, according to church history, for some 33 years he will remain there. He will courageously persevere. He will courageously endure. In fact, as we think about 1 Timothy, I want us to think of these words. As you think about the life of Timothy, Timothy as a pastor, think of these words and think about how we could be like Timothy in this courage, compassion, faithfulness, perseverance. And that's what we need right now. And how do we do it? How do we endure in such a time in a secular culture that's all around us? How are we going to do it? How do we find the courage and the compassion and the faithfulness and the perseverance like Timothy? What's well, found in this prayer that Paul offers up to Timothy in chapter 2, verse part B. Paul says, listen, look, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a prayer that Paul is praying, a word of blessing that he's speaking over Timothy, over the church at Ephesus, and over us. And may we receive it. How are we going to endure? And how are we going to stand when we're completely winded and we don't know how much longer we can go? We don't know how much longer we need to go. How can we endure? Some of you, your faith may feel as frail and as thin as a thread, like it's about to break. Some of you may be the end, at wit, near, literally at wit's end. And how are you going to endure? And how are you going to make it? Others of you, the thinness of your faith and the frailty of your faith looks like rage and anger. You're so angry as you look out upon what, what, the, what the, those people are doing to our nation and all of these feelings of rage that you feel. How are you going to endure? How are you going to take your angry fist that you've got raised in anger and turn it into holy hands lifted up in prayer, as Paul will say? How are you going to do it? Three ways, grace, mercy, and peace. It comes from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is unmerited favor, but it's also divine enablement. You can write that down. Grace is divine enablement. It's God's power coming to you, enabling you like grace. It's by grace that we are saved. It's God's divine enablement coming to you, enabling you to be saved. Paul says, it's by, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace has enabled me. 
Remember in 2 Corinthians, when Paul has this thorn in his flesh, this messenger of Satan, we don't know exactly what it is, but Paul prays three times to God that he would remove it. And instead of removing it, what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My divine enablement will get you through, Paul. It's sufficient and it's enough. And what Paul's writing to Timothy is saying, God's grace is enough. That the grace of God that the Father has displayed in Christ the Son, it's the most clarifying truth in our lives. It enables us and upholds us and gives us strength to endure. Mercy, this isn't usually included in Paul's greetings, but mercy in the Old Testament is God's special care for the weak and needy. And that's Timothy. He's weak and he's needy. He's in need of God's mercy coming to him. And lastly, God's peace. And that's what we need. We need the peace of God in our lives. And here's the reality as quoted from Martin Lloyd-Jones that my sister Destiny Winning reminded me of a great line from Lloyd-Jones is you'll never know the peace of God until you know you have peace with God. Peace with God comes through Jesus. The foundation of all of this is the gospel. It's the truth of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together that we could look at and we could study your word. And I pray for us as a church that we would endure, that we would stay unified and loving. Lord, as we pursue sound doctrine, right theology, right ways of thinking, keep us humble, keep us compassionate, Keep us full of courage. Keep us faithful. May we persevere until the end. Jesus, when you come back, may you find faith in us. When we go before you, may you find faith in us, Lord. May we stay loving. May we stay loving, Lord. We ask this now in your powerful name. In your name we pray. Amen.